This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. A scroll through the news headlines each day leaves many asking, who is running the show? Is God still on his throne? Even as Christ followers, do we live as though we really believe God will have the final victory? As though Christ really is coming back? Our speaker today takes us to Psalm 48, to the song of the sons of Korah, as a lesson on trusting that God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. The Reverend Mark Ray is the Vice President of Community Development here at Grace, and also the Executive Director of our Grace Center for Spiritual Development. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor, and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Let's listen now to Mark Ray's message, Who is in Charge? This is the continuation in looking at a number of different psalms. We've got this week, we've got next week. There's going to be a couple of great weeks after that. Herman Eben is going to bring the message on the 25th, and then Randy Sims is going to bring the message on the 1st on Labor Day weekend, and then we've got the mission fair. So we've got a lot of great stuff getting ready to happen. Today we want to dive into Psalm 48, but before we get there, I want to read to you. (laughs) These are actual label instructions on things that you would buy at a store. Actual label instructions on things you'd buy at a store. Here's the first. On a bag of Fritos, you could be a winner. No purchase necessary, details inside. You see where this is going, don't you? On a bar of dial soap, directions use like regular soap. On a a set of swan frozen dinners, serving suggestion, defrost. Really? On a box of tiramisu dessert, do not turn upside down, and that was printed on the bottom of the box. (laughs) I love this one. On a package of bread pudding, product will be hot after heating. (laughs) On an iron, do not iron clothes while on body. On Nightall, a sleep aid, this is great. Warning may cause drowsiness. Yes. On a kitchen knife made in Korea, warning, keep out of children. <laughs> Lost something in the translation, don't you think? This on a string of Chinese made Christmas lights for indoor or outdoor use only. On a food processor made in Japan, not to be used for the other use. (laughs) Think about it. Let it soak in. Makes no sense at all, does it? On an American Airlines packet of nuts, I love this one. Instruction, open packet, eat nuts. (laughs) And finally, this one. 
Oh, this is strange. On a chainsaw made in Sweden, do not attempt to stop chain with your hands. <laughs> you read those and you think, really? Really? Who, who's in charge? Who was the one that let those instructions get through? Who was the one that, that allowed that stuff to get out there and actually get printed? Who is in charge? Who's running this show? About 10 years ago, at the church I was in at the time, we had a harvest carnival, much like the harvest carnival we do here. And one of my good friends, who was a pilot for one of the major airlines, was greeting the kids as they came in the door. And he was dressed in a rainbow wig, a big red nose, multicolored clothes with the big fluffy buttons, shoes a size 48, and he was making balloon animals as they came in the door. He was delighting every kid that walked in the door. And about 45 minutes into him making balloon animals, he decided to take a break. So he walked over to me, and he stood next to me. He looked me in the face, and he said, I fly jet airplanes for a living. (laughs) And the thought that struck me was, what if I was getting on an airplane? And the door to the cockpit was just slightly open, and I looked in, and I saw him in in the pilot seat. I would be thinking, who's in charge? Who let that clown into the pilot seat? I don't know if you've read the papers lately, and maybe you haven't. I don't know if you've looked at the internet lately, and maybe you haven't. But there's a whole lot of stuff out there that gives us cause for concern. Terrorism, war. I saw a little little thing this morning that 2014 is supposed to be the year of worldwide economic collapse. Nature on the rampage with floods and hurricanes and droughts. There's a lot out there that would make us think, who is in charge? Who is running this show? But I'll tell you, there's probably an even bigger question out there, and that is really the question. If we get really honest, Herman kind of alluded to it in his prayer this morning. It's this question that is really, what about me? (laughs) What's my future? With all this stuff out there, when we ask the question, who's in charge, what we're really saying is, what about me? What's the hope for my future based on? We're going to look this morning at an incredible psalm. It's Psalm 48. And I want to give you a little bit of background on this. It's written by the sons of Korah. Now, if you were like me, you probably thought that David wrote most of the psalms. Maybe Solomon wrote a few. There's one or two from Moses. But there's about 15 psalms written by the sons of Korah. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, who in the world are the sons of Korah? Well, let me tell you who the sons of Korah are. They're the sons of... You guys are great. They're the sons of Korah. Now, who was Korah? Well, back when the nation of Israel had made their exodus with God's incredible hand from Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness, Korah was the head of one of the families in the nation of Israel. And Korah's family had been given the task of being the keepers of the temple while they were in the wilderness wanderings. Now, Moses had been put in charge by God, and Aaron had been given, his family had been given the priesthood, And Korah got a little bit jealous of the fact that Aaron got the priesthood and his family only got to take care of the temple. 
And he got a little bit upset with the fact that they hadn't yet gotten into the land flowing with milk and honey. So Korah led a revolt. He led an uprising against Moses and against Aaron. And he and two of his relatives, as well as 250 members of the assembly, rose up against Moses and said, you're not fit to rule. You're not fit to lead us because we haven't made it there yet. And he went to Aaron and said, your family line is not, my family line should be the ones that should be fit to be the priests. And so Moses does an amazing thing. He falls on the ground right there. And he prays to the Lord and says, God, tell me what I should do. And God says, here's what I want you to do. Grab Korah and his two relatives and the 250, get them to bring incense and come down to the major tent. Come down to the main tent. And I'm going to tell you who's in charge. So Moses goes back to Korah and he says, you and your two relatives and the 250, you come on down. And Korah says, I'm not coming. I'm staying in the tent. That's how, much I re- re- uh, that's how much my revolt is against you. I'm not even going to come do what you tell me to do. And the 250 decide that they're going to come down. So they come down with their incense and they light it. And God shows up. And God says to Korah and his two who are sitting in the tent, Moses is the one I put in charge. And Aaron is the one I put in charge of the priesthood. And by the way, here's what I think about your revolt. And the ground shakes and it opens up and swallows up Korah and the two relatives and they're gone forever. And then fire comes down and it consumes the 250 that are out there. And God in one fell swoop says to Korah and his entire family, I'm in charge. Moses is the leader. He's the one who I put in charge and Aaron is the head of the priesthood. In one swoop, he says, this is it, folks. I'm the guy. Now that's the Mark Ray paraphrase, all right? But then he does an amazing thing. God looks at the sons of Korah, the sons of the ones in this rebellion, and he reinstates them as a family. He says to the sons of Korah, you guys are it. You're in. You're there. And he gives them two responsibilities. The first responsibility he gives them is as the doorkeepers of the temple. An elevated position, not just the keepers, but the doorkeepers of the temple. And the second thing he does is he makes them the musicians of the temple. Listen to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You heard that before? We ever sung that before? Listen to the beginning of Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. We ever sung that before? In the beginning of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Today, friends, we sing the songs that were written by the sons of Korah. Think God knew what he was doing? When he put them in place as the doorkeepers and the musicians, what God does out of this incredible grace is he raises up the sons of Korah from this incredible revolt, reinstates them and makes them the doorkeepers and the musicians of the temple. An unbelievable reinstatement. That's how great God is. And the sons of Korah write Psalm 48 in response to how great God is. And in answer to the question, what is my hope for the future based on? What about me? Who's in charge? And what the sons of Korah are going to tell us is that God's the one who reigns He's the one who reigns. The second thing they're going to tell us is God's the one who ruins the enemy. And the third thing he's going to tell us is God is the one who rules 
in loving kindness. Those three things they're going to lay out for us in Psalm 48. Turn with me to Psalm 48. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 together. It's up on the screen. Psalm 48, verses 1 through 3. This is a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, starting in verse 1 together. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. First thing that the sons of Korah tell us is that God reigns in Zion. Now what we're going to look at in this God reigns portion is we're going to look first at his realm, then we're going to look at his reach, and ultimately we're going to look at him as the refuge. These are incredible statements that the sons of Korah make, and remember their background. These are the sons of Korah who are extolling the praises of the one who redeemed them. Okay? First, we look at his realm. Where does he rule from? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. First, we find that he rules from, he reigns from Mount Zion. Now, this is an interesting statement because Zion being a little to the left of the city of Jerusalem, many times in Scripture, Mount Zion and Jerusalem are used interchangeably. So what he's stating to us here is that God will reign from his holy city. He will reign from Jerusalem. He will reign from Mount Zion. That's the area that he's going to reign from. And the descriptor of that place is that it's holy and it's beautiful. It's perfect And it's perfect and holy because God inhabits it. And it's beautiful, literally translated out of the Hebrew, I see God in it. The city is so beautiful because God is the one that inhabits it. The city is beautiful because God is in the middle of it. The city is holy because a holy God inhabits it. So his his realm where he's going to reign from is this beautiful holy mountain. And it's a beautiful holy mountain because God's in it. Don't you want a place that the king reigns from that is beautiful and holy, that's perfect and beautiful? Don't you want that to be the place? He, you wouldn't want him to reign from the slums, would you? You want to reign from just this incredible place. And God says, the reign will be from this holy city that is beautiful, that has God in it. Then we ask the question, how far is his reach? How far does the reach of his reign go? And listen to this. It is beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. The joy of the whole earth. This is a great statement because it encompasses Jews and who? Us. Psalm 117 verse 1, David says, praise be the Lord, all you Gentiles. That's us, folks. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. What this says is that the reach of his reign will be to Jews and Gentiles alike. It'll be to both. It'll be across the board. And this is a foreshadowing of Christ for whom all the nations, all the tribes, all the tongues will come up underneath Christ. And that's where we'll be united in, the Jews and the Gentiles together. So the reach first is over Jews and Gentiles. And then there's this statement, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north? This is a great little statement because actually when you look at the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion's to the south. 
So what's this to the north? Well, there was an actual mountain to the north. It's called Mount Zaphon. And Mount Zaphon is kind of like the Mount Olympus to the Greeks. This was to the Phoenicians, to the Canaanites. Mount Zaphon was the place where Baal, the gods of Baal and the gods of El, that's where they were known to reside. And so what the sons of Korah are saying literally is, our God is greater than all the false gods. His reach will be not only to the Jews and the Gentiles, but his reach will be above and beyond even the false gods of this earth. That's how great our God is. That's how big his reach is. So his realm from the city of Zion, this beautiful holy city, his reach over the Jews and the Gentiles, his reach over the other false gods. And third, where his refuge is, where we can run to, where his place is, this is in Mount Zion, the city of the great king, where God is in her palaces and he is known as her refuge. His realm the city, his reach over all, and his refuge to you and to me, his refuge literally, the city of the great king. This is a great statement because it points us directly to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2. This is a royal psalm, but the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2 in verse 6, an incredible statement. Listen to what it says. Psalm 2, verse 6, one of those great Messianic Psalms says this, God says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill Zion. God says, literally, I've set my king, the Lord Christ, I've sent him on my holy hill. I've sent him in Jerusalem. I've sent him on that beautiful, perfect hill. And your refuge is in him. This is a beautiful foreshadowing. It's a beautiful prophetic statement about the coming of Christ who will be that refuge. The one who is the king who is set on the holy hill. And it's interesting to notice here that God says... God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. God is the one, when he sets Christ on the throne, he is the one who's in. Do you remember the the, uh, Peanuts character, Lucy? Remember that? Remember when she's the psychiatrist? And she sets up her little psychiatry booth and she says, the doctor is real in. Remember that? Some of you who are older remember that? The doctor is real in. Well, this statement says God is real in. And when he's in the palaces, there is refuge there, and he is in the palace through his son, Jesus Christ, all time. That same Harvest Carnival, there was our youth pastor, his name was Bob Reed, and Bob had two little children, his daughter Brianna and his son Bryce. They came to the Harvest Carnival dressed as Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz and the Scarecrow. I think it was a little fantasy of Bob's wife to dress them up like this. But she came in, Brianna came in just dressed, the glass ruby slippers, the dress, the whole thing. And Bryce came in, he was about three at the time, and Bryce came in as the scarecrow. And he was so packed with straw that this kid could barely move. And he went over to try to play some of the games, he couldn't even bend his arms. It was just such a sad thing. And so Bob decided, well, I'm going to take him out to someplace he can enjoy. So he took him out to the petting zoo. They walk through the gate of the petting zoo at the Harvest Carnival, and every animal goes, lunch. And every animal in that petting zoo came over to this three-year-old Bryce and began to pull the straw out of his hair, out of his hands, out of his feet. And Bryce got, let out this incredible yell and ran right back to Bob's legs and hid behind him. 
Now, Bryce didn't run to the fence. He didn't run to the gate. He didn't run inside the building. He ran to his father. And what we get here is God saying, he's in the palace and he is our refuge. And through the great King Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. Amen? So we get God will reign in Zion, this beautiful picture, and the picture of Christ being placed on the throne in the palace. The second thing we look at in verses 4 through 8 is we look at the sons of Korah who say that God will ruin the enemy. The question that, says, that, that rises up is, if God is on the throne, if Christ is there and on the throne and God's in authority, he's the one who's in charge, then is there opposition to God? And the sons of Korah say, yeah, there's going to be opposition. Listen to what they say. We're going to read verses 4 through 8 together. 4 through 8 together. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it. And so they marveled, they were troubled, they hastened away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Verse 8, as we have heard, so we have seen, in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. What a great statement. God will establish it forever. So we look at the second part of this where the sons of Korah say God will ruin the enemy. The opposition that rises up, the kings and the kingdoms that will rise up against God. It's even a foreshadowing of the end times when they're going to rise up against God across this world. Again, Psalm 2, that messianic psalm. Listen to what it says in verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed ones, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Make no mistake, kings and kingdoms will rise up and they will try to defeat the Lord. And the sons of Korah say this is what's going to happen to them. First of all, when they assemble, They will pass by the kingdom. They will pass by the throne. They will pass by the city where God resides. And they will marvel at it. And they will be so troubled that they will run away. So first we see that they will be attacked. That kings and kingdoms will rise up. They will rise up to oppose God. But God will have victory over them. He will have victory over those kings. And he will bring great fear. Verse 6. Fear takes hold of them. And the Lord will break their ships apart. Psalm 2 is a great messianic psalm. The other is Psalm 110. And listen to what it says in Psalm 110 that connects it right to this psalm. This is David speaking. And in verse 1 in Psalm 110, he says this, The Lord said to my Lord, this is God talking to Christ, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. And then in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. What David tells us is that God, through Christ, will take care of all of the enemies. They will be broken. They will be destroyed. They will be defeated. Their ships will break apart. He will rule through Christ from Zion with all the authority and all the power. Make no mistake, it's going to happen. 
I was in a men's room in an office building some time ago. And as I walked into the men's room, there was a hot air dryer. You know those that dry your hands? There was a hot air dryer on the wall. And over the top of it, it said this, push button to get a word from the boss. Let it sink for just, it's coming. What the sons of Korah are telling us here is that the kings are a bunch of hot air. That's all they are. They're a bunch of hot air that ultimately God in Psalm 2 says, God laughs at their plans. Why? Because he will have the victory. Ultimately, it's there. He will have the victory. Finally, look at verse 8. As we look at him ruining the enemy, it says, As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. He will establish that city. He will establish that kingdom. He will establish that rule. He will establish that reign. This is absolutely the coming of Christ. This is absolutely the establishment of the promise of the Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant said back in Genesis 12 said, You'll have land, seed, blessing forever. The seed line continues through David into the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, where God says to David, I will give you a forever king on a forever throne. It'll be my son. A forever king on a forever throne. And this, from the sons of Korah, says he will establish that forever king. He will establish that forever throne. It will be his son. It will be his anointed one. And it connects into Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. It's an incredible statement that's made here. Just in the city of our God, he will establish it. How long? How long's forever? Yeah. So what we get is we get the reign of God through Christ from the holy city over the Jews and Gentiles, over the false gods, and the refuge that he is, that he's in the palace. And then we get that he will absolutely ruin the enemy. He will have the victory. He'll strike fear at their hearts, and he will establish his kingdom through Christ, a forever king on a forever throne keeping the promise that he made to Abraham and to David. Wow. And this from the sons of Korah. It's often been said that the promises of God are certain. They just don't all mature in 90 days. Bank on it. God's promise is certain. He will do this. Finally, in verses 9 through 14, we're going to read that together. We're going to see now the question that's asked is, if God is the one who reigns, what kind of ruler is he going to be? What kind of ruler is the one who's in charge? What kind of ruler is he going to be? The one who holds my future, what kind of ruler is he? Let's read verses 9 through 14 together. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go all around her. Count her towers. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Don't you just kind of want to sit in the middle of that statement? Wow. So what kind of God is this that will rule? What, who is this that will rule? What kind of ruler will he be? 
Well, first in verse 10, we get this. He is one who will rule in loving kindness out of verse 9. But in verse 10, here it is. Dan, you said it. Your right hand is full of what? So as a judge first, he will rule in righteousness. And who is the righteous one? Who is the judge? Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and rule in righteousness. So first, he's going to be a judge. But he's going to be a judge who rules in righteousness. Second, I love this one. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments. That word daughters of Judah is many times used to mean the peoples and the cities. So this is one who will rule as a father to the joy of his children. So first we get a judge who will rule righteously. Second, we get a father who will bring joy to his children. And third, we get this in verse 14. He will be our guide, literally translated, he will be our shepherd even to death. That he will be the one who will shepherd over us. He will be the one who will lead us and give us direction as a good shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? Christ himself. So this this incredible look at the one who will rule as a judge in righteousness, as a father to the joy of his children, and as a shepherd to guide forever. There was a little girl who was trying to learn the 23rd Psalm, and this is what she said. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the one I want. That's the one I want. The one who will reign over all from the beautiful city of Zion. The one who will ruin the enemy and establish his forever kingdom with a forever king that will rule as a judge in righteousness, as a father in joy, and as a shepherd who will guide us forever. That's the one I want. Amen? So we've looked at who this God is, who this one is who's in control, who this one is who has our future in his hands. And the only question now is, how do we respond to that? Well, since this is what the sons of Korah have said to us, my suggestion is we go back and we look at what the sons of Korah say in this psalm about how to respond to this God who is the one who will reign, the one who will ruin the enemy, and the one who will rule in loving kindness. How do we respond to him? There are three ways. The first, in verse 41, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The first thing we do is we praise him. We praise him over and over. We praise him over. We praise him for who he is. We praise him for the establishment of his kingdom. We praise him for his son. We praise him for being the one who will reign, being the one who will rule, being the one who has the plan, being the one who will ruin the enemy, being the one who holds our future, being the one who holds us up, the one who is our refuge. Can I go on? We praise him and we praise him and we praise him and we praise him. And this again, remember, is the sons of Korah who are praising him. The second thing we do is we prepare for him. Praise him first, then we prepare for him. And listen to this. Verse 8 says this. As we have heard, so we have seen. And verse 9 says, we have thought, O God, on your loving kindness. Heard and seen and thought. Contemplate, think about, focus on, put your attention on, know and understand, move more deeply into a relationship. What they're talking about here is preparing for the time when all of this will come to bear. We're preparing ourselves for eternity. 
What that says is that we think about who's the one that brings it. We talk about who's the one that's there. We engage with the one in an intimate relationship, the one who is to come, who has come and who is to come, who will establish this kingdom forever and ever and ever, where we will be, which means what we do today matters for eternity, right? What we do today matters for eternity. We're not just here to kind of hang on. We're here to prepare for what eternity is. This is the proving ground for what eternity is. And what we're here to do is, as the sons of Korah did, to see and hear and think and contemplate and mull over and talk about and be in the midst of who this God of the universe is that set his son up as the king who will rule forever and who will come again to establish that eternal kingdom where we will be, amen. Do you want to just kind of dance a little bit right now? That's where we're going to be, and that's what we do second. We praise him for who he is. The second thing is we prepare for what's to come by how we live life today. Let me give you an example of that preparing. There was a story told of a West Texas town that was growing through an incredible drought. They'd been looking for rain for weeks and months and even up to a year, and no rain had come, and the crops were drying out, and it was... They were absolutely dying. The dirt had turned brown. There was nothing green growing. And there didn't seem to be any end in sight. So the pastors of this small town gathered all the people together and they said, next Saturday we're going to hold a prayer vigil. For one hour we're going to pray for rain. And what we want you to do is everybody in the town, come to the town square and bring your objects of faith. Those things that give you an inspiration for what faith is. Bring your objects of faith down. Sure enough, Saturday came, and they came down from all walks of life, and they brought their Bibles, and they brought their crosses, and they brought their rosary beads, and they brought everything that was an object of faith, a symbol of faith to them, and they brought them down, and they prayed for one solid hour, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and when the prayer was over, as if on cue, a gentle rain began to fall, and there was wild cheering. People were going nuts. They were just going crazy and holding up all their objects of faith until this one Nine-year-old boy stood in the middle and the crowd parted. And this one object of faith became the most important one. He popped open an umbrella. We prepare for him by faith, knowing he is coming again. We prepare, prepare for him by faith, knowing that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one on the throne with the Father and will be there forever. We prepare now with an eternal perspective. The second thing we do is prepare for him. The third thing we do is this. Look at verse 13. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces. That you may tell it to the generation following. First we praise him. Then we prepare him. The third thing we do is we proclaim him. We tell it to the generations following. Did the sons of Korah do that? Yes, we're reading them, we're singing about them. The sons of Korah did that, faithful to tell it from generation to generation. We are to tell it from generation to generation to generation that our king is on the throne. That's what we're to do. We praise him, we prepare for him, and we proclaim him that he is our king. You have been listening to Mark Ray. Regardless of the headlines, we can rest knowing who is really in charge. Rather than fear our future, Mark challenged us 
to praise God, prepare for Him, and proclaim Him. Imagine if every believer accepted this challenge. You may be thinking now of friends or family who really need to hear this series on songs of praise. We encourage you to share our podcast. In addition, we're making available to you a free study guide of the entire series, which would be great for personal or small group study. Download your free copy today at gsot.edu forward slash songs. That's gsot.edu forward slash songs. We are so happy you tuned in today. Remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.